From the EPR Creation Studio, this is the Unconquered Podcast. I'm Jason Staples, and uh, we're going to review the Wake Forest game and then talk a little bit of uh, some of the, in many cases, ridiculous coaching rumors and such uh, surrounding the program after the embarrassing loss to Wake Forest this last weekend. Before I do that, I want to thank my first sponsor, EPR Creations. They partner with small businesses for website development and online strategy planning. If you need anything done on the web, give EPR Creations a call. They're the ones who uh, I contracted to do showthesafeties.com. And if you haven't signed this, the showthesafeties.com petition, please go over and do that. I'm trying to get some better camera angles than what we keep getting in the modern game of football. No reason to shoot it like it's 1989. It is no longer that, and we're, we're watching on high-def widescreen televisions, and teams actually throw the ball, spread the field, and see if we can get them to actually treat the game as though that's what happens. Getting back to the Wake Forest game, I'm, this is going to be a pretty short discussion, to be honest, because for one, I don't really want to talk about it. It's, uh, it's a bad state of affairs when Florida State's losing football games to Wake Forest, and it's a worse state of affairs when it's really not that much of a surprise. And uh, a lot of it does boil down to the same culprits. And there's only so many times that I can talk about how poor quarterback play combined with poor offensive line play ultimately hamstrings you on offense. And then the defense not closing things out and properly playing as a defense, tackling a number of things. I mean, there's only so many times we can go over the same pathology behind the disease and uh, yeah, what I will do is I'll try to correct some of the things that I, I think I got wrong in my hot takes. Uh, the first thing is that I really, I don't think James Blackman played nearly as poorly as my initial impression was. Uh, I, I, I think my first impression of that game was distorted a bit by the blatant miss of Keith, a wide open, uncovered Keith Gavin on that fourth and two where he's trying to get the ball snapped quickly and just never took a look at what was going on. And, you know, you just have to have a little bit more aware, uh, awareness, and that's a touchdown. And that, that's the difference in the game. Uh, and, yeah, that's a bad one, but I I kind of understand what's going on there. I mean, he's being told, get it snapped, get it snapped. And, you know, they've got the play call. He's That's not an RPO situation. That's a hand the ball off and get it snapped as quickly as possible so that they're – scrambling and they were scrambling all right but it, the thing the next step is to be able to just take a take a look and yeah that was bad and then also the the final two plays that sequence of dropping the ball in the pocket without contact and then not being able to recover the bad snap and just the bad look and how bad a taste that le- left in my mouth i think everybody's mouth as well uh i think those sort of distorted a little bit of how well he played or how not well he played through the rest of the the rest of the game, and I, I thought actually he he played a reasonably good game. I mean, there were a number number of times where he escaped pressure in the pocket. Uh, the, the the touchdown to Acres was excellent. Uh, he he made a couple other plays where he was able to escape. He was in the grasp, and you, you just wouldn't expect a guy who looks like Blackman to be able to break some of the tackles that he does in the in the pocket and be able to make some throws. And he made some throws that that got them first downs and and put them in position for touchdowns. And and uh, he 
He didn't play nearly as poorly as I thought he did. There were a few misses, again, that you wish he could have back, but this was not a bad game by by James Blackman overall. I mean, if I'm grading this as a quarterback coach, you know, he's he's getting a passing grade on the day, even though there are a couple of failing plays that are big deals. And uh, and so that's that's worth noting. I, I think I got that wrong in my hot takes, and I I, th- I want to make sure that I I put that forward. And when I went back and looked at the film, it was like, yeah, you know, I, this is better than I thought. I think also the other thing that skewed that a little bit is that there were a couple of really, really bad drops from the receivers. Tamori and Terry dropped what should have been a sure touchdown on a on a little uh, glance route, little skinny post type route, and Blackman put it right on him. And Terry, you know, if you're going to be an elite receiver, you have to make that catch. And you, you got to take that to the barn. I mean, you, you, that, they set that up that you're, you got a wide open situation you got the opportunity to really make a play there and you just let it hit your hands and go right through. And that's, you know, that's not helping your quarterback out. And there are a number of situations where guys just didn't help the quarterback out. And, you know, you got a couple others where DJ Matthews needs to go up and with two hands on on one of them and and bring it down. Uh, Wilson. Yeah. It's not the best throw that Blackman made that during the day, during the, uh, that game, but Wilson dropped, one really important conversion, and then uh, there there was another that he could have he could have probably reeled in. So I mean, overall, this is just the, the offense. You you had a series of guys that didn't make the plays that they needed to, and as well as Acres played that fumble. Going back and watching it, that fumble was also you could look look at that fumble, and that's the difference in the game. And so there are five or six different plays that different guys on offense could have made. Blackman had. At least one of them, the, the the one where he didn't didn't hit Gavin, who's wide open. They make that play. That's t- that's a touchdown. That's the difference in the game. Akers doesn't fumble when he does. That's the difference in the game. Terry makes the catch and runs that in for a score, like he obviously would had he made the catch. That's also ball game. That's the difference in the game. And there are a couple other ones where you know that's a three. That's a that's a third down conversion, and all of a sudden you've. You're in scoring position and and deep in deep in scoring position and instead of giving it back to to Wake Forest and Wake Forest goes down and kicks a field goal from that field position and all of a sudden you know again that's a difference in the game. There were a few of these and it was spread across the team really. Uh, and there were also a, there were just again too many busts in terms of of pass protection. There were too many busts in the running game. We talked about that before in the preview though. That's kind of what Wake Forest does. They're gonna they're gonna cause you problems with what they do up front with some, some stunts and, uh, and some of the other stuff that they do with, with their linebackers on green dogs and all that. And again, a green dog is where a linebacker is waiting a little bit to see whether somebody releases. And then if the H backer tight end stays in the block, then they're going to bring extra pressure. They're going to bring that guy instead of keeping him out there to, uh, to cover. And, uh, and they do some of that and they do that from different angles and, and they're going to get some hits on the quarterback as a result, but there are still too many occasions where the offensive tackles, they're just letting a guy set him up with a little outside move and then untouched to the quarterback in a few cases. And that's Ryan Roberts. That's Abdul Bello. That's Jawan Williams. And that's also Washington. I mean, it happened to all, all four of them and it's just not good enough. You got to make sure you got to have some, some ability to at least get run through slowly on that stuff. And you can't give a, a, a clean line on an inside move. So still 
a long way to go there. I did think on second viewing, I thought Baselli played pretty well at center. Uh, early in the year, the thought was that if if uh, Babyon Johnson went down, then this would be really bad. But Baselli was not really a drop off from Babyon Johnson. There were a few snaps that weren't that weren't as good, but other than that, he he didn't play bad uh, or didn't play any worse than than Babyon Johnson. So let me qualify that. So he played at the level that that Florida State's basically been seeing there, and actually in some cases probably got to some second level guys that that uh, that Johnson hasn't, and he wasn't he didn't show himself to be any weaker than than Johnson. So I mean, at least he was he was actually a, a reasonably uh, competent player at the, at the center position. So that's, that's actually a good sign. Uh, Minshew has to be pushing 360, 370 pounds and in pass protection, uh, not, not quite as nimble as what you'd like, but he's still a pretty good player when it comes to, uh, to, to run blocking and can be an, can be an upgrade at times because Brady Scott, Brady Scott, you know, he's got some, some positives, but he also has shown, against better defensive tackles against stronger defensive tackles. He just is, he's not as strong as he needs to be. And so he gets pushed back into the backfield too often. And that's not happening as much to, to, uh, to Minshew. I mean, he's, he's a load and uh, doesn't get pushed, pushed around as much as Brady Scott, who is one of the more reliable players up front for Florida state. He's just not one of the strongest. And that shows at times. Uh, So overall, I mean, Again, the 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 thing that's frustrating is that I do think that Taggart in his uh, in his press conference when he said, "Listen, we're close. We we we're real close to winning games. We're close to turning some of this around." As as much as that sounds ridiculous, he's actually right in terms of some of the offensive stuff in in particular. That you you look at you change one play in five different games on the offensive side of the ball and they win all five games and they're sitting five and one and nobody's nobody has any complaints right now other than how bad the defense has looked. And well, you know, you're, you're going to get the same kind of treatment of the defensive staff that you got in the, in the Charles Kelly days when they were winning uh, at different points. And so you're not going to have as much criticism at the top. You're going to have a lot more criticism of, you know, some of the minor things uh, and some of the big picture things are that doesn't, that doesn't negate some of the, the, the major mistakes. I mean, Taggart and, and and that staff they've done a poor job ma- managing games. You know, in game management has not been very good. You know, he does a, a good job when it comes to, uh, you know, philosophical things like when to go for it on fourth down and all that. He's been right pretty much all year on that sort of thing. When to kick, when to go for it. But it's the in this in the game decision moments on stuff where it's not an automatic deal because you know philosophically that's what you're committed to. Where there've been some problems and that's timeout usage. That's making the decision to kick when, you know, yeah, that's the right decision, but actually thinking through that and not looking ahead of play or two. If you're not the one calling the plays in particular, you should be looking ahead of play or two to determine what do we do here if this if this doesn't work? If, if we don't get the first, what do we do? You know, that's the sort of thing that, yeah, those are problems and there's been problems there all year. And a lot of those problems are head coaching problems, not play call problems, not it's integration problems in terms of what you're what you're asking your coordinators to do, you know, your offensive coordinator, I want you to do this, this drive because we need this overall in terms of big picture stuff. I and mean, we've talked about that. Same thing with the defensive stuff of we want, listen, you got to get the ball back. And if they score here, they better score on a, on a long, you know, some of these things, the vision from the top needs to be clearer on some of this stuff. But 
I mean, again, they're they're in a position where they really should be, and there's no excuse not to be five and one at this point. If you look at this schedule, there's no reason that Boise State in that situation with the true freshman quarterback and his first start should have won that game. And it shouldn't have been a situation where one play or two plays is enough to turn that game. They should have won that game by more. And then, you know, same thing with Virginia. <laughs> that game, they, they were in command in that game. You can't let Virginia come back the way that they did. Same thing with Wake Forest. You can't, you can't lose that game. You can't keep making the same mistakes, but they, they do. And, and again, there's still some culture issues. There's still, uh, even down to the, to the idea of doing warmups without shoulder pads and helmets and all of that. I mean, it drives me crazy. I don't even let my, when, I, when I'm coaching, I don't even let my receivers or my quarterbacks, I mean, I often will get like, hey, can I, you know, can we go, can we go without helmets right now? Like, no, no. I don't let them do that. Why? Well, because you play the game in a helmet. You need to be in the helmet a lot. You need, I mean, helmet needs to feel like home. And yeah, it's hot. Or yeah, you know, it's uncomfortable right now. Well, guess what? Football's played in pads and a helmet. So get used to it. But, you know, there's a lot of those things that, that I'm, I'm a little bit more of, a, uh, of an old school type, type guy. And I think that, that there's something to the business-like, we're going to do things old school approach that would be helpful when it comes to, to the cultural stuff. But, and I would like to see a lot of that change. But ultimately, especially on the offensive side, I think that they're, they're real close to being able to compensate for some of the things that have held them back. They're, again, they're behind the eight ball in terms of the quarterback the overall quarterback play on the season and the overall offensive line play on the season I mean you're not going to have a top five offense with what they've got there but you can do what they were doing at a good for a good portion of this season and have a top 15 or top 20 offense because of all the skill talent you've got you just have to make sure that you're disciplined and keep guys from making some of the mistakes that they've making that they've made now defensively it's it's still not good Given the talent they have on defense, to me, there is this defense has given up 30.7 points a game. That's 93rd in the country. And yeah, you know, they're playing there. There's there's been a, a little bit higher tempo. They've had they've faced a few extra drives in a few games. But overall, they haven't faced a whole lot more drives than most teams in the country. I mean, they even though the tempo has been relatively high, you look at the number of plays and number of drives in games and it's pretty much in the relative norm area they're 93rd in the country in scoring defense against a schedule that's that's okay offensively they haven't faced a a a slate of a bunch of elite quarterbacks i mean obviously they played the elf and you know bowmeister the the freshman for boise is a good player but he's a true freshman and you played him in his first game they they haven't faced a, a a really tough slate of offenses and yet they're giving up 30.7 points per game with top five or six talent defensively. And that to me is the part where, man, I mean, and watching, watching this Wake Forest game was, was more, more of that because going, going into it, you're looking at it like, how can you have Marvin Wilson and Corey Durden and Cooper and some of the guys that they have up front I mean, some of the guys behind them are pretty good players and just get gashed in the running game 
in on the interior. I mean, how do you do that? And there were times where Wake Forest did what they wanted in the running game. And again, it would have been much worse had they actually had their quarterback who runs the football really dang well. And overall, yeah, 2.9 yards per carry given up. That's not terrible. But situationally, there were times where they just did not handle the run the way that, that, that you would expect them to, given the players that they have. And, you know, some of the stuff, I, I mean, I, I'm seeing guys, people rip Stanford Samuels III. Going back, my first impression there was confirmed. I thought he played pretty well overall. He had a very tough matchup against Sage Surratt, and they ultimately gave, a, gave him a little bit of help over top in a couple cases. But for the most part, he was one-on-one with Surratt, and Surratt's a beast. And he handled that most of the game. There were two, two plays where he was really beat, but the rest of the game, even on a couple of the catches, he he was in position. That's good coverage. Sometimes you got to tip your cap. And there were a couple places, a couple situations where you know they threw the football into the end zone on a on a on a fade route, and Samuels won. You know, actually made the play. So there were there were some cases where you know he was able to make the play and 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 handle his business there and win that matchup. So I don't think he played played badly. Uh, I do think still that the that the corners could play with much better technique than what we're seeing. I think that's the most surprising thing since Harlan Barnett was was hired. Is Barnett has a reputation of being a very good defensive backs coach, given his record at at, uh, at Michigan State, and the overall technique at, at defensive back, particularly at corner, has just not been the. There was some improvement initially over what you saw uh, with Charles Kelly. In, in some of the man coverage technique, but in a lot of areas, it's just not that great. And I think a lot of that is, is them being down a coach. And if they'd been able to hire a guy like Clark in the off season, they could have been much, much better. I think at the corner position with the personnel that they have and, and been more fundamentally sound and defensively, they'd have been better. But I just think overall, just the, the entire approach, everything that we've seen on defense it's just frustrating to watch. They're just not, the pieces still don't fit together as well as you would like. And there's still too many situations where they're just not, they're not closing out drives. They're not consistently dominant enough. This is a defense that personnel wise, even with the injury situation, shouldn't be given up more than 20 points a game, given the number of possessions that they've played and the, and the offenses that they've faced. And they're giving up 30.7. And if the defense was taking care of business the way that they should, they'd still be five and one. So that's that. And they're going to have to get that taken care of one way or another. So, I mean, I don't know that there's a whole lot more to cover there in terms of, um, in terms of the weight game, but you know, I, I, I'm happy to welcome some questions for later in the week, but I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and shift gears and talk about, a couple of the coaching rumors and all of that stuff that's come out. And then, uh, and then we'll do uh, some question and answer stuff at the end of this podcast. Uh, since I've gotten a lot of stuff that I need to, I need to address from, uh, from folks who've, uh, who've written in. So uh, before I do that, I want to thank my second sponsor and that is Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. As I've said before, if you, if you want the best online presence, if you're listing your house in the greater Jacksonville area, nobody does it like Louis. He's going to have clean, crisp, smooth walk walk through video 
You're going to have drone footage of your property. He's going to know how to, how to stage and set up your house to make sure that it sells quickly and for the best price possible. And if you're looking for a place, nobody's going to outwork him on the, on the, on the trail. He's going to find, he's going to find the place that you want and he's going to make sure that, that, that you get the best possible price for it. So if you're looking for a house in the greater Jacksonville area, let Lewis know, let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered podcast. All right. So a couple things about the rumors and so on and all of where Florida state is. Um, so there's been stuff, I mean, even coachingscoop.com or whatever it is, uh, they put out that basically you know, it's not working out with Willie Taggart. And, you know, there are sources that are saying that Florida state's interested in, uh, in urban Meyer. Oh, come on. I'm sorry guys, but you got to have a, a better BS detector than that. I mean, really Florida state's not hiring urban Meyer and urban Meyer isn't going to Florida state. If, if urban Meyer is going anywhere and I do expect that he'll coach again, and I do expect that he's going somewhere, it's going to be USC. And from what, what, from the rumblings around the, around coaching circles, it's kind of taken for granted that urban will be at USC next year. Now that that's assuming that USC makes the change. There's some rumblings that basically there's already sort of an understanding that he's going to be there. Uh, but basically the expectation is that urban Meyer will be at, at USC. He's not going to be at Florida state. Florida state's not interested in bringing a former Florida coach there. I mean, you think about what that even even without Urban's uh, sort of persona and some of the issues that 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 brings in uh, for certain parts of the Florida State fan base, who you know, if you're going to have complaints about Urban, well, you know, there's some degree to which uh, the current current composition of the of the coaching staff. I mean, there's enough controversial figures there that it, it's it's it would be interesting to see who would be complaining about urban that isn't complaining about some of the controversial figures already on campus. And again, I I'm not saying that those figures are, are bad guys or that they shouldn't be there. I'm just saying that those who would have a problem with urban, well, that's interesting. Um, but the bigger problem is you're talking about bringing a former Florida coach in, and that's just bad politics. If nothing else, if you're a, uh, if you're a Florida state, uh, admin and you know, decision maker, as good as, as good a coach as he is, it's probably not the best, uh, the best, the best thing to do anyway, but either way, it's, it's irrelevant. He's not coming in. He's not coming. And Florida state's not pursuing him. Florida state isn't at at this point. I can tell you right now, Florida state has not had a a meeting with, with Willie Taggart or anybody, uh, any of his representatives telling him that he's out there. He's still as of, as of right now, the plan is still for Willie Taggart to be back for a third year. Now that is contingent on finishing the year making a bowl. If they don't make a bowl game, then yeah, well, we'll revisit this discussion later. You know, they go five and seven and they miss a bowl again. Well, yeah, you know, you're probably going to see Willie Taggart and that staff fired, but they really don't want to be in a position where they're firing him after this year. And, uh, if they make a bowl, then they can at least say that there's progress. And if they go seven and five, which I think is very possible given the schedule, then, it's real, pl- it's real plausible that, uh, and, and you know, the probability is that they'll that they'll bring him back. There's a lot of reasons to do that, and as of right now, my best sources are saying that, you know, Coburn is still in Taggart's corner, for the most part. I mean, yeah, he's still he, he is understanding that there needs to be progress, <laughs> but uh, but you know, he's not going to make any any rash decisions at this point, and isn't. Uh, 
isn't committed to removing Willie Taggart. Uh, there are some big boosters, and there's some people on the board of trustees who are not Taggart fans at this point, and you know think that maybe it would be best to move on. But they're not. First of all, they're not the ones that are going to make the final decision. And second of all, uh, even they are in a position where if they recognize that if Florida State, let's say, goes six and six or seven and five and manages to to at least show some progress at the end of the year, that it's probably best to go one more year for a number of reasons and just roll with that, make some change, make some of the necessary changes on the defensive side to get some things improved, and then see what happens in year three and make your decision in year three. Year three becomes the year where the, the seat the, the the seat is not just hot, it's scalding at the beginning of the year. But I expect Willie Taggart to be back in year three. And he's going to have some opportunities because on the FSU FSU football insiders, some, some people, I, best way I can put it, good sources <laughs> are... Uh, there, there is a lot of confidence uh, among the FSU coaching staff that uh, Derek King is going to be transferring from Houston to Florida State to play for Bryles next year. He's redshirting his his senior year at Houston, ostensibly to come back and and play next year uh, in a year where new new head coach out there Dana Holgerson is trying to target next year as being really a year where they begin that that sort of new era under Holgerson and he's he's hoping that that's how that works out but you know King may just well decide to jump ship of course he's going to be looking at how Florida State finishes and some other things but the expectation is that King will be the uh the the a transfer quarterback at Florida State next year so what basically you'd be looking at is Taggart in his third year with some defensive staff changes what I expect defensive staff wise. And again, this is not, this is not confirmed from anybody inside and all of this. This is trying to put together, read the tea leaves based on the things I have been told is that you'll see Levitt join the staff as the inside linebackers coach and be the co-defensive coordinator with Harlan Barnett, who will coach safeties and they'll bring in a cornerback coach to be a second secondary coach while Barnett and Levitt coach the, the defense and coordinate the defense together and then you're going to get one of the one of either Snyder or Woody that's going to step off the field, basically. That's and I actually of, of the two of them, I would expect it to be Woody to be the guy to step off the field. But I, again, I'm not I'm not sure on this. This is just me telling you what I what my projection is based on what I've been able to put together from what I've been told. Uh, but there's going to be some defensive changes if Taggart sticks around. Uh, if, you know, if he's kept around. And, uh, and, and basically that's, that's what I expect. Now, again, there's, there's noise. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes as there's some dissatisfaction, but right now there's 17 million, very good reasons to keep Taggart around. In addition to a pretty good recruiting class coming in for next year with a, with a quality quarterback and some, some pieces that would be, uh, very bad to lose. Now you don't, make hiring and firing decisions based on recruiting on a, on a current recruiting class. But in any case, uh, with some of the guys that, uh, that they're, that are currently on the roster that are developing and some of, some of these things, they could be in position to be, to be somewhat improved in some of those key areas. Now, the biggest concern in year three is that you're going to lose really the best players across the board on your team. Acres going to pro, going pro 
Wilson going pro. Uh, potentially some others. I think Hamsa probably goes pro. Uh, you know, Durden could go pro. Terry, you expect him to go pro. So now you look at the all of the special players, all the difference makers that you have on your roster right now. If you lose Wilson, Durden, Terry, Hamsa, and maybe one more, maybe a maybe a a Stanford Samuels who probably sticks around one more year, but you lose all those guys, and all of a sudden, oh, and in Acres, you lose all those guys, and and yeah, I mean you're you're not nearly as talented for year three as you were in those other years. Now the question is, can you get the offensive line in the quarterback position? to be talented enough where even though you're less talented overall, top to bottom on the roster, you have fewer weaknesses in terms of the imbalance of some of the places on the roster to where you're actually a better team. And that's really what they're, what they're hoping for. And they are, they are, I can tell you this uh, from uh, as, as, as a fact, they are turning the world upside down, trying to find, trying to find tackles for next year. Guys that can play tackles. The guys that can, guys that can play tackle because they just don't have they they got to get them and again to me the best recruit that they could get there is on their own roster they've just got to manage to to convince the kid that it's a business decision in his interest to play tackle and that's Malcolm Malcolm Lamar it's tough to say Malcolm Lamar anyway um they uh, you know they they need him to they need him to 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 play to play tackle. Uh, and then they're, you know, maybe get a, a grad transfer or a, a really good Juco prospect. I'm not sure how many good, really good Juco prospects that could come in and play there are, but they, you know, get a grad, grad transfer at, uh, at, at tackle, move Lamar over there. Maybe one of the younger guys moves up, but I just don't think they're real confident in the young guys yet. I mean, Washington played okay against Wake, but I mean, they, they need really somebody else to come in and some new blood on the roster to really be a, a tackle. They, they feel like the young guys at guard, they've got guard and center. They're going to be pretty good, but they, they, they know that they need to get some instant contribute uh, contribution type guys at tackle. Uh, and you know, that is what it is. So, like I said, that's, that's the situation. And again, there's 17 million reasons why they wouldn't want to make this decision. Plus, if you're going to make this decision, the last thing you want to do is do it with an outgoing president and an outgoing AD who's not a football guy in a situation where there's no real surefire candidate that you're going to target to replace him. And yeah, I know some people have brought up Mark Stoops and some others, but I mean, Mark Stoops has basically the same record that Taggart does. And yeah, you know, at Kentucky, it's a tough job, but I mean... I've been asked about what what do you think about Mark Stoops? Well, you know, I like Stoops. I like him a lot. I think he's a really good coach overall. But look at some of the mistakes in game that we've seen from from Kentucky, particularly in, you know, some of these these egregious mistakes that have cost him two or three Florida games. And you, you can't do you know, maybe you can survive doing that at Kentucky, but you can't do that at Florida State. And I'm just not sure how big an upgrade he would be. And, you know, maybe he is an upgrade, but is he a third, is he a fifty million dollar upgrade? Because that's really what you're doing. You're having to pay out the the old staff. You're having to buy out the the next coach, and then you're going to have to pay him a bunch. So I mean, you're making a fifty million dollar decision. You better make sure that that guy's worth that. So that's that's the situation. Florida State doesn't ha- they're not flush with cash. They just aren't. Now I was told that if they do end up having to make the decision, they have the money. 
the money the money is basically collected that you know in terms of the bo- the big boosters and all of that when they you know if that decision needs to get made that they can make it and, and the money is the money's taken care of so that's that but but on the flip side it's a yeah but we don't want to spend that money because i mean it's not like we have a bunch of it uh to to go around i mean better not to spend it so that's where things are I expect to see Urban at USC, Taggart at Florida State, and Derek King at Florida State next year. That's what I expect. Things can change. You know, if they go five and seven, well, you know what? That's it. But I expect to see Taggart at Florida State for a third year, and and that's going to be the money year. That's going to be the year that's going to determine whether or not he stays another year. So... I'm going to go ahead and get to the get to some question and answers before I uh, before I wrap this show. Before I do that, I want to thank my third sponsor, that is Garage Makeovers. They are the top rated garage remodeling company in South Florida. According to both Home Home Advisor and Angie's List, if you live in Palm Beach or Broward County and you need any garage work, give them a call. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered Podcast. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and nail uh, go ahead and nail some uh, some questions down here, some some answers here. First question: Who is further ahead of Florida St- of Florida State, Florida with Tebow or Clemson with Lawrence? Oh. <laughs> wow. Um, hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I would. <sighs> I would say Clemson with Lawrence is a, is further ahead of Florida State right now than Florida was with Tebow. Partly because by the time Florida had Tebow, Florida State had already hired Jimbo. Things were moving in the right direction at that point offensively. And, you know, 2009 was sort of the 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 low moment there. Defensively Florida State was was a wreck, but if you looked at where some of the progress was, they were moving forward. They had some quarterbacks on the roster who would eventually be okay. You know, you had Christian Ponder on the roster. Uh, and also, I, I'm more confident that Clemson, just in terms of culturally, is going to be able to stick and and be able to, to handle things and handle change much more so than that urban staff. Uh, they're going to keep bringing in top players. I mean, they've got they're 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 in position to bring in the best recruiting class in the history of modern recruiting, which Florida, you know, you they did actually. I think in the 09 Florida class at that time was ranked the highest of any any class ever. I think it was the 09 class, and that was a class that kind of submarined their their program. But Clemson's really really picky about the guys that they take culturally. It's I mean I've talked to some of their their recruiting guys, and they are just really they they. They turn guys down because, you know, they, they bring in some of the team leaders after they've after a visit or whatever, and they say, does this guy fit our culture? And even if he's a five-star, they're not taking him if, if, if the answer is no. And so I, I think Clemson is further ahead. I think they're going to last longer in terms of their where they're at in, in, in terms of their, their quality. I don't see Venables going anywhere. Um, when Dan Mullen left at, Flor- at Florida, they were clearly a lot worse. Uh, you know, Urban is not a is not an offensive play caller. And when he lost Mullen, they were worse. When he lost Herman at, at Ohio State, they got worse. 
He's got to have that guy. And when that guy then moves on and takes a head coaching job, that's when Urban usually the, the, the problems start is trying to replace the the guy that that he had running his offense, the really good guy that he's able to identify uh, and, and, and make that first hire. Whereas I think Clemson already has kind of things rolling in a situation where culturally they're going to be better. So I would say Clemson is further ahead than, than Florida was with Tebow. All right, next question. Should any defensive starters other than 8, 11, 16, 21, and 23 be penciled for next week before this team, this week's practice? So that's Stanford Samuels, Janarius Robinson, Durden, Wilson, and Hamsa. Should anybody else be penciled in for next week before this week's practice? Same question with the offensive line, except Lucas obviously gets the nod. So this is really getting to the question about uh, about the a potential youth movement. And I think, generally speaking, you want all, all your starters to be in pencil anyway. And you, you said penciled in, but yeah, you want all your starters. You want competition every week, even though that's kind of unrealistic to some degree. But yeah, I, you know, I would say... Uh, uh, Samuel, Asante Samuel Jr. needs to be penciled in. He needs to be be a starter. I think uh, I think uh, Levante Taylor in general should be on the field more more often than not when he's healthy. Uh, and I think in what they're doing, you have to have Cooper out there at that nose tackle position as often as possible. And and you know I I think at linebacker, you know you have to. I don't know that you change the starters, but I do think that you you rotate some of the younger guys and you rotate 56. You rotate him in a little bit more. Uh, you know, I don't know that you can make a ton of changes to the starters personnel-wise. I do think, though, that I'd like to see more of the young linebackers on the field. I'd like to see more McClendon at, at, at defensive end. Uh, although, again, that's that means that Janarius is coming off the field some, so... I mean, I think you need to be selective on when you do that. I think Briggs needs to be playing a little bit more, even though again he's he's not he's not been great at times. He's been okay. I just you know I it's it's not the easiest thing when we're talking pers- personnel right now because there's nobody that's really been special. Oh, and a couple of the guys that that, that you listed now, offensive line wise, I think you I think you pencil in Roberts because he's the one right tackle you trust right now. You pencil in Lucas, you pencil in actually because of Johnson being a little gimpy right now, you pencil in Baselli. And then the left guard position, I, I think with how things looked last week, I think you might pencil in Minshew. And then maybe give the give the freshman another opportunity to to continue to earn those reps with Washington at left tackle. I think that's what I'd do at, at offensive line right now. But we'll see. All right, let's see. Um, next question. Over under 10 years that Florida State will be elite again. And then I actually sent a message back saying, what, 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 define elite. And I got the answer back, top five to 10 in the country. So over under 10 years that Florida State will be elite again. That's, uh, that's a tough question. I'm going to say I'm going to take the under just because over the last 40 years, Florida State's been elite more often than not by that definition. So just playing the odds, I'm going to say under 10. I'm going to say under 10. If you gave me five, I might say 
I might take the over there. That, that'd be that'd be 50-50. 10, I'm going to say they're going to get back to elite. Just because of you know the, the benefits of the, that the program enjoys in, in lots of respects. But, I mean, this is a pretty b- big hole that they're trying to dig out of in terms of culture, in terms of some personnel situations. Now, the thing is, if... Sims works out as, as a, as a really top level quarterback. And I think he's close to a five-star. If Sims works out at quarterback, if they're able to, to bring in, if they're, if they find a way to bring in in the next, in, in either this class or the next class to really manage to bring in a couple of elite defensive linemen, because that's really what they've lacked in, in the last couple classes. If Sims works out and they're able to find, to somehow attract an elite defensive lineman or two, I think they're elite really quickly. I mean, within the next three years, if they're not able, if, if Sims doesn't really work out or if they're not able to, to, to get a couple of elite linemen to commit, then I think we're looking at probably four or five years because you're probably going to have a, a coaching reset at that point. And then that's going to lead to another gap in recruiting. And I'd say, you know, six, seven years is probably about, the, about right at that point, but it's possible that we could be looking at two years, if you know if Jeff Sims works out, they could be top five in two years. Top 10, certainly top 10 in two years. Because once you fix what you've got up front and you've got a quarterback that's a, that's a, a top level player, they still have, they're bringing in some elite skill guys. And some of those guys that are on the roster that are elite skill guys are still going to be around. And you look at the secondary that they've got that they're going to have on campus and those guys are going to be elite in two years. They've got a really good group of young linebackers that they like. You just got to fill in a little bit, you know, an extra body or two that's a top-level body on the defensive line and fix the quarterback position, and you're right there. So I'm going to take the under and, and, and feel pretty comfortable about that. All right, next question. Think Bob Stoops would come be the head, the head coach? No. <laughs> no, I don't expect Bob Stoops to ever coach college football again. So simple as that. All right, so um, got a few other questions. Let's see. Uh, why do I think Willie? Sti- why do you think Willie sticks with Blackman? Is it because he cannot make Blackman unhappy and transfer because he's a quarterback for next year? No, I do not think that's the answer. I think it's because Blackman is probably the best option based on what they can see. Although there's some debate on that, I just think it's that there really isn't any separation between Blackman and Hornybrook and it's kind of a coin flip and that's that. And I don't think either, I don't think that they necessarily expect that Blackman's going to be the starter next year. I think they'll be active on the transfer market. Like I said, I think King is probably the starter next year. And I think Sims will have a chance to be the starter. If he early enrolls, he, he might, he might well win that job. So no, I don't think that's the issue at all. I think, it, I think it's, I think in some ways the issue is sadder in that, Florida State doesn't have another guy that they think is actually better based on what they're seeing in practice. All right, next question. Does Darius Washington have ideal length and height to play left or right tackle in the ACC to be a good player? I thought he was more of a a guard in terms of how he projected. I projected him as a right tackle coming out. I think he's long enough. Does he have ideal length? Well, no. I mean, ideal length is like 6'7 and real long. But I think he's got enough length to to be a good tackle in the ACC. He's a little lumbering to me to be a to be a true left, uh, and you know I think he fits as a as a right tackle with some good development and a little bit more uh, uh, 
time in the in a in a good strength and conditioning program, but I think he can play tackle. Uh, I think I think he can definitely do that. I think he can play guard as well. But I, I think you know he's he's a good six four and a half, six five, and he's got long arms. So I think he's he's long enough and tall enough to do it. But again, I think he's more of a right tackle long term. Um, next question: Do you think Taggart is guaranteed to be here next? I already addressed that. Um, any scenarios where Taggart is let it go? I haven't already addressed that. All right, what is the vibe about the team in Taggart with all the FSU beat writers? Do they have confidence Willie can turn this around? Um, I don't really know. I don't spend a whole lot of time around the FSU beat writers. You'd have to ask somebody else with that. Um, I do know that they're just in some of the interaction that I've had, you know, I, I periodically will text a beat writer or two for this or that uh, and, and, you know, exchange some stuff. I, I do know that some of those guys are not real optimistic right now, but I, I'm not the I'm not the best person to uh, to measure that, and I really don't care uh, what the what the impression is uh, with the beat writers because they're not the ones that are making those decisions. All right, is this administration willing to clean house if the boosters come up with the money to buy out Taggart this year? Are they willing to? If they have to, if it's a five and seven situation, they're willing to. Uh, do they want to? Absolutely not. And should they want to? No. So there you go. Um. All right. And I'm going to make this in the final question because I'm at 45 minutes already. All right. Um, I live here in Iowa City, Iowa, and follow the Hawkeyes some. One thing I've noticed is that Iowa keeps getting these three-star kids and turning them into NFL draft picks. Since Ferentz took over, he's had 17 offensive linemen drafted and two more projected to go this year. The Knowles have 18 in that time period. Kittle broke the, set in the NFL single season receiving yard for tight ends last season, and Iowa had two more tight ends get drafted in the first round last year. Seeing this gives me a skewed view of player development. How is it possible that Florida State keeps getting highly talented players up front and strikes out on all of them? Also, all of the three stars are not good either. Or is it a horrible job evaluating recruits and obviously developing? What will it take to get that turned around in your opinion? This is a really good question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this. I'm going to circle back to this when we get to the off season a little bit more. Uh, because this, is a, this, this deserves actually a full episode. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this more briefly at the moment. Um, so first things first is that you're recruiting very different kinds of players when you're at Iowa versus at Florida State. So when Iowa recruits an offensive lineman or a tight end in particular, those are two positions where they've had a lot of success, like you mentioned. Those are guys that are coming into the Iowa program, oftentimes as two or three star recruits, and they're expecting to sit and develop for two or three years. And they they know that they're going to come in and culturally they're prepared I just need to grind and get better for three years and then I'm going to get my chance. It's sort of like the old days of, of Florida state when they'd have a quarterback come in and be willing to sit for three years and then start as a red shirt, red shirt junior, and then play two years and move on. And then they'd have the next red shirt junior groomed to go. And when you're able to do that, the difference between a red shirt junior and a freshman or sophomore physically, when you've got a good conditioning program and when you've got good nutrition and all of the other stuff that you've got in a college program, that is miles different. I mean, you're talking about a grown man versus a guy that's just out of high school. And also culturally, those guys have bought in to what you're doing in terms of development. And they're being taught by the older guys. And now you have the older guy leaves and the younger guy's been his understudy and he steps right in. And that's the, that's the program that Iowa has built. And plus, Ference is one of the best offensive line minds and coaches in the country. And he's, he's done a great job training up some other guys underneath him to, to continue to, 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 uh, to work that out anyway. 
but and then you look at you know the just the the culture of the kinds of kids that you're getting out of Iowa in the Midwest and just that kind of lunch pail mentality that you're going to get for those blue collar kids. And it fits really well. So that's, and the thing is when you're recruiting those kinds of kids and when you're developing those kinds of kids, it's very different than when you go and you get a four-star kid who's been, who's, who's physically, they're more talented, who's more, you know, they're, they're naturally a little quicker, a little faster or whatever, but they also are coming in and they're expecting to play a little bit more. They're more entitled. There's more to tear down with those guys. There's more that you have to deal with in terms of cultural stuff that they have to get incorporated into the culture of your team. And then if they're playing earlier, there's less time to tear that down and get that guy built up and, and developed. You know, you look at James Blackman, for example, Blackman ideally would have been a guy that probably probably never actually is the starter at Florida state, but if he is going to be the starter, you want him to be the starter no sooner than his fourth year on campus so that you've got three years developing under the same, same coach so that each year he's getting a little bit better, understands what he's doing, gains weight, gets, you know, fundamentally sound, all of this other stuff and doesn't get thrown to the wolves, doesn't develop any bad habits from getting beat up or anything else. And then by, by year four, he's a different player than when he came in year one. But when you toss him on the field in year one and then he gets a new coordinator in year two and he's on the field a little bit and then year three, he's on the field again under a new coordinator again in a new offense and he's never really had the chance to develop. Well, yeah, that's going to hurt. And that's true even for, you know, for, you know, a, a, a more talented player, but even more so on the offensive line. And this is one of the reasons why you're, you're, you're not seeing them throw a bunch of young guys out there right now, even though a couple of the guys that they've got on the roster are more talented tackle prospects than what they've got on the field. You don't want that guy out there as a freshman. You don't really even want that guy out there as a redshirt freshman or as a sophomore. I mean, Washington's playing right now because they have to and because he's kind of earned it. But what you want is for, you want that guy to be in the program two, three years, getting stronger, developing and all of the things that, that and physically maturing before he gets out there. And then all of a sudden, when he gets out there in year three, year four, he's a different player. And when you start getting your program to that point where your linemen are all upperclassmen, and then the, you've got a, a, a second set of guys behind them that are underclassmen that are ready to step in when those guys graduate or when they move on, that totally changes your program. Florida State hasn't had that. They, and, and really what screwed them is you look at Dickerson transferred. Ball got kicked off the team. You, you you can go down the list of guys that got injured and and just the 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 number of players that would be expected to be on on campus as upperclassmen right now. Those guys aren't there, so they had to go and get somebody from outside to bring him in. And so that's not a development a guy that you've developed, and it's not a highly talented guy. You've got another guy that well he played as a freshman and got hurt and had some shoulder issues and he hasn't been able to develop. And he's also got some confidence issues, partly because he had to play so early and got his butt kicked. You got another guy in Bellow who was a four star. Yeah. You know, he's a, 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 a high, high ceiling, low floor guy. Cause he was a good athlete, but he had a knee injury as soon as he got to campus and he was raw, never got developed. And now he's, he was thrown out there early and had already developed some bad habits as a result of the injury. And, you know, 
some work ethic issues there, especially with the with the culture that had developed in terms of offseason conditioning. And it's just a total cluster. That's what you're looking at if you're Florida State. That's why you've got the problems that you've got. And that's why it takes a while to turn that around culturally to start developing it so that, you know what, we've got some upperclassmen. And the other thing, by the way, on the off, on the line of scrimmage, when you play young guys, because they're not as physically developed, when they face those grown men, they get hurt. They're not as strong. They're not ready to play. So when you have to play a freshman, you're holding your, you're, you're crossing your fingers that he doesn't get hurt because he might be 315 pounds, but 315 pounds at 18 is very different from 315 pounds at 22 or 21. Especially when you've spent those three intervening years lifting hard. And, you know, you're not on the field doing that. You're, you're lifting hard, waiting in the wings, training so that when you get out there, you're a hard body instead of baby fat. And all of a sudden you're, you're not, you're, you're not risking those guys getting hurt. And so you're getting healthy upperclassmen versus guys that, you know, by the time they get to be upperclassmen, they're broken up, they're broken down. This is why oftentimes I would tell parents, don't, don't go to the, don't send your lineman to the place where he's going to play as a freshman necessarily. Now there are some exceptions to that. I mean, Evan Neal is a guy that he would have played as a freshman at Florida State. He'd have been their, their best offensive lineman, and he wouldn't have been getting hurt because he's just a physical freak. But at, you know, at offensive line, you want, you want to be in a position where you're developing so that by year three, year four, you're ready to go. And Florida State hasn't had that luxury. That's really the difference. And a lot of that goes to some of the, the really bad luck and attrition that they've had at, that, at those positions more than anything else. And the final thing, again, goes back to when you're recruiting a five-star and he's expecting to play early, you don't have the same opportunity to develop that guy and to, to in, integrate him into your program at lots of those other positions. So there's actually some benefit. You can actually have some advantages. In, in many cases, a three-star who's in his fourth or fifth year is better, especially on the line of scrimmage. That guy might be better than the five-star who's a freshman. Now, by the time that five-star is a, a junior, <laughs> it's a little different. But, you know, it's, you can see this even in college basketball, where sometimes you see those teams that are full of that. It's, you know, five seniors who are all three star recruits that beats the 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 team that has a bunch of one and done guys or, you know, three one and done guys on that team because they're integrated and they've been playing together for years and they've developed and all of that. It's a similar kind of phenomenon. So it's just different. But if you're a coach, which one would you prefer? You'd prefer to, to have the more talented athletes and try to build the culture where you're, you're keeping them around. That's, that's, that's the goal is to try to get the best of both worlds. And that's what they're trying to do. But it's, it's really hard to do. Great question. And again, I want to spend more time on that in the off season. All right. Well, before I go, I want to thank the uh, sponsors, those uh, supporters, those patrons above the bleach numbers level. That's Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, and Burt Bertoldi. And always, as always, I want to thank the uh, three sponsors as well. That is EPR Creations, Luis Marquez, and Garage Makeovers. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this. <laughs>